Welcome to the Currency.News Energy Matters podcast, powered by Pinergy. Hello and welcome to Energy Matters, a podcast series brought to you by The Currency and powered by Pinergy. My name is Ian Kyo and over the course of this series we're investigating the Irish energy sector, how we've reached the point we're in and what we could have done differently in the past. But we'll also look at what needs to be done right now and what the future holds. In this episode, we're focusing on renewable energy. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Conal Bulger, Chief Executive of the Irish Solar Energy Association, and also by Ruth Young, Senior Consultant with Cornwall Insight, the energy consultancy. You're both very welcome and thanks for joining me here today. Thanks for having us. Uh, Ruth, I'll begin with you. And we're going to talk about lots of things over the course of this podcast, from technologies to log jams in the system to potential uh, that's out there. But let's start with where we are. Um, you know, we have all of this potential to develop renewable technologies and renewable energy in Ireland. But where are we? Are we a laggard compared to our other European countries? Are we ahead of the game or are we somewhere in the middle? I think it depends on which way you look at it, really. So I think it, people in specific technologies um, looking to develop those may feel like we're potentially a laggard. But if you're looking at how much renewables that we've allowed onto the system at this stage, I'd say we're a world leader. So really... Um, Oh, you know, we're doing well, we have a long way to go and we have really ambitious targets to meet and some people might be sceptical about whether we can actually meet those targets by 2030. Yeah, and, and, and kind of those, those targets are 80% for renewables by 2030. Um, is it possible, based on our current trajectory, that we can meet them? Well, the window's rapidly closing on our ability to do so. Um, we need to deliver the network really to connect all these projects, all these different forms of technology that Ruth spoke about. And to date, we probably have been uh, a bit slow in terms of how we get network out. And there's kind of two sides to that, I suppose. One is that the networks companies probably could have done a better job in some cases. But there's also kind of a society political question as well. we need kind of people to get become supportive of the rollout of this infrastructure. Uh, you know, we can't have people objecting to every single instance of a project. Otherwise, we're never going to get there. And we just have to really accelerate through the gears now. Kind of what we got, what got us here won't get us there. Uh, just, just explain to me the logistics mm. of it, of how it operates. So someone wants to build, be it a wind farm or whatever, some renewable project, from getting to that point of idea to actually getting it incorporated into coming into people's homes. Sure. So kind of the first stage is usually um, uh, a discussion with a landowner, whether you own the land yourself or somebody else, um, kind of getting site control, um, usually options to develop on that site. You then go into a planning process, which can take a, which can take a long time, depending on whether or not you're appealed to on board Planola and if there's a judicial review that follows. Following planning, you then get to go into the grid process. So you have to be allocated grid, you have to be awarded a, a connection agreement, you have to pay a lot of deposits on that. At that point, you then have the joy of entering into the renewable auction process, and we'll probably come back to that in detail later. Yeah. Um, compete to uh, secure a kind of guaranteed price. Then you're into the financing the asset, and at that stage, you're probably ready to build. So kind of end-to-end, that can take anything five to eight years. And just for context, uh, the, fir- the first solar project energised this year uh, at the utility scale onto the public network and that project, the landowner discussions were happened in 2016. So that just kind of gives you a sense of what, 
how long it can take. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to have that context as we talk about trying to hit these targets in 2030, Ruth. Is there anything we can do to streamline that process or what would you be advocating for? Um, I think there is quite a lot of work being done in some of those areas. Um, but I do think maybe one of the biggest constraints is just the resourcing behind it. So, um, you know, the the actual planning part um, is massively, you know, take, it takes a, a huge amount of time. And then, and that's for onshore where we kind of have a bit of um, experience and then you're looking at offshore where it's a whole new process um, and they are bringing in um, new rules around that but it's still you know looking at um, the the first two auctions what they're going to do around um, the kind of development planning there and I think it's just a case of uh, getting a lot of uh, resourcing involved there and then as Connell said the, the grid side of things um, we just need to start seeing that the, the National Grid Air Grid um, group just putting more effort and resource into actually building that out and making it or reinforcing it to be able to allow for all these um, additional megawatts. Okay, so we've mentioned auctions twice. Uh, now, you guys are living in it and breeding in it, so it's, you know, it's part of your lexicon, but a lot of people are out there going, what are they talking about? Uh, so what are you talking about? So we're talking about something that has the catchy title of the Renewable Electricity Support Scheme, or RES. Um, there have been two competitions under RES. What RES really essentially is about is individual projects compete against each other. Um, so there's essentially a budget of support. So the department says we will uh, ensure, we will award a kind of fixed contract to this volume of projects. Um, and so the projects compete against each other on the basis of their cost of generating power. So what the developers have to do, in a sense, is they have to pick a number. They have to say, they have to say, whatever my number is, and they have to, be, over the lifetime of the asset, work out how much it's going to cost to build it, how much it's going to cost to operate it, bring all that back and reduce that all down to one number. And then on the basis of that, they start going cheapest up to most expensive. And so they kind of stack the projects up and eventually, once they get over the budget, right, you're, everyone who's above this line is out. Now, practically what that means is you're awarded a fixed price for... They say up to 16 years, but in reality, it tends to be closer to 15. Um, and anything you pay in, anything you get above that price is essentially you have to pay back. So if you're generating power into the market, you have to pay back to, during high price periods. So actually, as a recent example of what this means, um, you might have heard the government talk about the PSO credit, 89 euro. And that we're all getting back in our bills. Hallelujah! We can <laughs> we can all go to the crisis, pub. The crisis is averted. We can we can all go to the pub tonight. But a lot of the, that eighty nine euro is actually from renewable projects who are actually paying back because the price is higher than the price they got in the res auction. They calculated that price to being three hundred thirteen million euro. So that's three hundred thirteen million euro that renewables are actually paying today to kind of help insulate customers. And if we'd been a lot faster in developing these assets, that number could be a lot higher. Is the system fit for a purpose, Ruth? Is it working? Is the auction process, the bidding system working for, you know, allowing developers to, to get out there and build? I think so, yes. I think we're seeing a, a great pipeline uh, coming down the line. And also, you know, it provides a bit of certainty and takes out some of the risk for the developers. And then, uh, as Connell said, then on the other side of things, it actually um, de-risks for the consumer a little bit as well by being able to provide that extra money, the PSO money back in uh, onto the bills. In terms of the specifics, I'll just stay with you. Uh, 
onshore versus offshore, the great debate, where do you sit on it? I think we need both. Definitely need both. But in a hierarchy of... Um, so I think, in ter- you know, we've we've got a, a huge amount of onshore wind uh, at the moment and that's fantastic. And, you know, we're getting up to 75% um, renewables on the system at any one time and that's predominantly offshore or onshore wind. We have a huge resource of offshore potential there, you know, up to 37 gigawatts. Um, so I think really what we need to do is start um, seeing that, that offshore potential being realised uh, for Ireland to meet our domestic demand, but also to potentially export or uh, create alternative industries like around hydrogen, for example. Well, the reality is, um, to steal a phrase from somebody else, we need a mosaic of solutions. In energy, there's no one silver bullet because all the technologies have their own different characteristics. They run at different times. And the idea is ultimately what you're trying to do is layer them all on top of each other in a kind of fully renewable system. So your problem then becomes, I have too much power at some times, not enough power at other times, and you use storage to move that around. Where the real um, scale opportunity with offshore is, is that we have a large sea area. So there's a real potential to turn that into energy for the rest of Europe. So whether through, people are talking about hydrogen or whether it's direct exports via interconnectors, we're going to need to satisfy a lot of our onshore demand with onshore renewables. And with the likely timelines for a lot of that offshore, between now and 2030, most of the heavy lifting is going to be done by the onshore renewable fleet. So we do need to expedite those projects. Now, I want to come in a moment, almost like a rapid fire buzz around to some of the technologies and, and the various and, and the various renewable energy that's out there. But I just want to put a question to yourself, Colin, because Eamon Ryan was talking to my colleague Thomas Hubert on the currency in the, in the aftermath of the budget. And he was saying that there was a solar revolution was taking place and the industry was really scaling up. And yet some of the numbers don't seem to justify that at present, that there seems to be a log jam in the system. Uh, what you're living and breathing it, as I say, every day. What's what's your take? So we definitely see a reality where solar is providing 20% of Ireland's electricity by 2030. And that isn't a long way away from an energy perspective. If you kind of look at the different levels, so we've kind of focused on the utility scale solar here. There is about 2,000 megawatts of solar contracted to be built uh, by 2025, which is f- going from a standing start today where we've where we've a few pro- we've projects under construction. So the rate of change in solar at the utility scale is huge. Then if you kind of take it down, down to kind of industrial and commercial buildings, we're starting to see the kind of large industry develop really large solar systems, like systems that are so big, the central system operator wants to be able to control them. That's how, because they're actually useful as generators. Then what we're seeing, we talk about kind of no rooftop left behind in the kind of small uh, across the country. Um, Mari and UCC recently did a piece of work for ourselves um, looking at quantifying the rooftop residential resource. And they found that there were about one million homes in Ireland that were suitable for hosting a rooftop uh, solar system. And if that they could provide up to 25% of Ireland's residential electricity demand. And so there's this kind of massive potential there's this real pent-up demand. Like, the association I represent was started in 2013, and there's a lot of people built up businesses, pipelines, just raring to go. And we're 
2022 is kind of the year where we finally get a lot of the policy frameworks in place that are allowing that to happen. And you're really going to start seeing solar coming up in rooftops all around the country. Okay, uh, Ruth, if solar is going to do 20%, where's, where's the rest of it going to come from? Is it going to come from wind, hydro, biogases? Where do you, what's your... Um, I think just given the resources that we have in Ireland, um, wind is definitely going to take up a, a large proportion of that. Um, pre-2030, Connell is right that, you know, we're really going to be heavily reliant on what we're seeing onshore, um, onshore renewables, not just onshore wind. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're expecting at least, I don't know, three gigawatts of offshore to come in uh, by that stage as well. So I think it kind of a combination, you know, it comes back to what Connell said about the mosaic of yeah. we need everything. Yeah, but which, from your own perspectives, which are the easiest to get on board, to get through the system, to get up and running? I, I think um, if we're looking at what's coming through in the uh, subsidy schemes, the, the res that we spoke about, you know, the solar is coming through. Uh, we're seeing more onshore wind. Um, there, there will be a little bit of um, like kind of the, the biomass or the, the AD side of things. Um, but really, we're looking at, you know, the 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 renewable sources that we have um, and then uh, the... Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you mentioned there about people trying to push, you know, put the solar panels on the roofs. What can we do from a policy perspective? People are out there crying for it, they're seeing their energy bills going up, they really want to do it. What, what can we do to make it easier for them to, well, to make it happen? In a sense, some of that policy has actually started to happen already. So there's a thing called a microgeneration support scheme. Under that, people are entitled to an upfront grant up to the value of 2,400 euro. Um, they're also entitled to an export payment and the, the suppliers are now offering those um, in most cases. And with energy bills being h- higher than they've ever been, there's kind of a triple effect there in terms of the potential uh, economic benefit for householders. The planning, there's some planning restrictions which are being eased at the minute. So we understand that Minister Burke is going to sign into law in the next week or two uh, the removal of planning restrictions for solar on people's rooftops uh, around the country. So in, a f- in one sense, that's a, that's a really good start. Um, where, where we probably need to kind of work together a bit more is probably on the skills piece. Um, there's as Ruth kind of mentioned earlier, the kind of need to actually build up the volume of people in the industry. It, it's an act of patriotism if someone gets a, an electrician's qualification these days. We need people who can deploy panels, climb roofs, do the heavy engineering, do the bookkeeping. There's, we, we need to probably quadruple the headcount of people working in this space. So I think really focusing in on those skills piece, thinking about apprenticeships as a real route for people to kind of get involved and get engaged in the space as well. Um, We probably have a lot of programmers. Um, We could probably do some more apprentice electricians. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think maybe continuing on from that point, you know, we a lot of what we're talking about here, we're sort of focusing on, on grid scale, but really around the, the microgrid side of things, traditionally we've looked at things from a centralised approach, but it's not just thinking about the different renewables that we need on the system, but it's also thinking about the decentralised versus centralised. We, we need everything. So it's not just... Just, just, the, just take a step back. Decentralised yeah. versus centralised. What, what, yeah. what do you mean by that? So centralised approach is... The, there's um, the national grid and they say what's required and we build massive grid scale um, solutions to that around power, massive power stations, for example. Then decentralised is, you know, domestic rooftop uh, solar, for example. 
And then there's a, a wide range of things that can happen in between that. So it really isn't just what um, technology solutions we can use, but it's also looking at um, the, the grid all the way down to domestic kind of solutions up to massive massive power stations. To maybe kind of talk about the evolution of that, um, you know, the old world was you had a, few, a small number of power stations and basically they burned dead dinosaurs, pushed the power out to all of us and basically you have a market which says, okay, which one of these is cheaper at burning dead dinosaurs? You turn on first. The new world is homes, businesses around the country generating their own power, maybe storing their own power using batteries as well or other forms of storage technology. You have a national utility scale network where you have wind and solar working together because they tend to generate at different times to each other. So you start getting this nice kind of increasing the volume of hours where you're running on more and more green power and using storage to move that around. Then you have an offshore network which is lots of offshore wind, hydrogen, multiple interconnectors to other markets. So you're moving to a much more complex market, uh, sorry, much more complex system and one that is kind of weather driven in many, way, in many ways, uh, which is a big change from the burning the dead dinosaurs. Yeah, no, and I'm sorry, and to go completely uh, in a different direction, I just want to bring up the idea of nuclear capacity. We've seen challenges in France recently with cooling nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. Is it something we need to consider in Ireland at the moment? I think there is uh, the bodies that are advocating for nuclear are definitely saying that what's needed is a study as in the first instance. So a study um, and kind of all, all the consequent follow on actions from that in order to get it up in terms of a timeline. My honest answer is I'm not sure, but I do know that we need a hell of a lot more renewables between now and 2030. So um I wouldn't want us to be taking our eye off the ball from the kind of renewables perspective. I think my view on nuclear is it really comes back to to timescales. Currently, the way uh, nuclear power is rolled out um, on the continent, for example, it's too big for us. It's not flexible, so it can't react to intermittent renewable generation that we have on the system. Um, And even if we wanted to, to build that, we couldn't get it in by 2030 or possibly couldn't get it in by 2050 but the conversation needs to be had because we are looking at modular nuclear reactors becoming available maybe not quite yet but potentially you know beyond the 2030 mark that could be an option for Ireland and I do think it needs to be on the radar because these things take an awful lot of time to actually get built and so if the conversation is being had then we may be in a position to be ready to consider it down the line. And does renewable gas play a role in Ireland? There's certainly an argument for it um, in terms of uh, the conversation we're having at the minute about agriculture um, and emissions and how do we transition that sector. You could see uh, scenarios where the waste products from agriculture become part of the feedstock for renewable gas. So just a, a quickly on how renewable gas works with that probably. Yeah. Uh, so there's a essentially what you do is you allow materials to decompose in uh, in an atmosphere with no oxygen. So what that does is it creates a gas product. That gas product can then be used. Um, it can be burned in power stations, for example, so uh, replacing natural gas. So the theory is that it should uh, deal with a lot of some of your carbon emissions piece. And I think what we're seeing now uh, in the sector is that those barriers between the different industries are starting to kind of erode somewhat because we're talking about crossing sectors now to help us meet the sustainability challenge. Um, so that's there's definitely 
uh, scope for it. There's definitely a lot of interest in it. Uh, I suspect what's probably needed is a bit more of a policy prompt. Yeah. I th- if we're talking about it from a domestic home heating point of view, I think currently uh, off the back of the Climate Action Plan, we're looking at either electrifying uh, home heating or making the gas more renewable. And both of those are kind of happening in tandem. I think to, for it to really have some proper change in that area and decarbonise in home heating, a decision needs to be made to maybe progress with one over the other. And potentially the easier option there is to go into the retrofitting homes and electrifying heat. Uh, there were new EU rules adopted to decouple the price of renewable electricity from gas. Uh, How is it going to work here? And from a, you know, from a business point of view, is it going to make a difference for their energy bills? So where we see the kind of impact of it, um, where in the market anyway, is that we spoke earlier about this renewable electricity support scheme where people have to pay a fixed price and then everything above that goes back to the consumer. So in this in this in this model, what the the price they picked was one eighty, I believe, in the the European Union. So you compare that to an average price of about ninety eight euro per megawatt hour in the res scheme. So a lot of those projects would be paying back up to that. Now, what that means overall in terms of the impact, it does mean that people one of the business models that people were looking at the minute were large corporate players contracting with renewables directly. So rather than going through this res scheme, doing a private agreement, then using that private agreement to move that along because essentially the high energy prices are are a real impediment for a lot of industry. And we've just seen, seen that in all the media and news. So there's a real question about whether or not that corporate PPA, uh, that's what those agreements are called, apologies, there's a lot of jargon in energy, there's a real question about whether or not this this mechanism will actually have an effect on that corporate PPA market. Um, ultimately, in terms of the renewable projects, they were paying back everything above their fixed price anyway. Um, so I think it'd be helpful to kind of see some analysis of what it's actually going to do to consumer bills. Um, you know whether it's a whether it actually cha- whether it actually does generate a pool of money to uh, insulate people from bills, or whether it's more of a political sop and the other piece then on the government has a policy in corporate PPA and does this work in opposition to that and that's something I think we're just going to have to work through. It just highlights the complexity the sheer complexity of what's going on in this space. I just want to take a step back from that complexity route. I just want to say in terms of what's the best thing that we can do as we go forward to encourage investments in renewables you know, at all forms of the industry, you could do one thing. If you had Eamon Ryan's job for a day and you can get into his office and do one thing to encourage investment. I think we need to look at removing the two main barriers to the development of renewables and one being around grid reinforcement and then the the second is just around the the time it takes for um, consenting and planning, etc. So... I echo both of those. Probably from a solar perspective... uh, Grid is probably more more of an issue than planning, but more broadly across renewables, definitely. Grid and planning. OK, well, Conal and Ruth, thank you very much for joining me here today on Energy Matters, a podcast brought to you by The Currency and powered by Pinergy. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Currency.News Energy Matters podcast, powered by Pinergy.